Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about foreknowledge. I'm going to direct your attention to this post that was made on a Calvinist webpage, and it says this, Did your foreknowledge that your baby would walk about age one mean that you determined its steps? And so this guy's trying to do the Matt Slick thing where you try to show that foreknowledge of event does not cause that event to happen, which I don't know anyone who makes that claim. And so it's kind of a straw man. Real quick, the claim is not that foreknowledge causes events to happen. If an event is 100% foreknown, that event will happen with 100% certainty. The foreknowledge doesn't necessarily cause that event to happen. But the foreknowledge does indicate to us that something is causing that event to happen. That event is fated. There's no free will involved in that issue. It must happen no matter what. And when things must happen no matter what before we're even born, we have no say in it. We have no free will. It's a fated event. But uh, you'll see people all the time try to do these little foreknowledge uh, straw men where they, they try to set up things like this. Where they say, oh, foreknowledge doesn't cause something to happen. But that's not your actual position. You, you do not take that position. You take that God has 100% foreknowledge of all events with 100% certainty. Nothing else could ever happen other than what he knows in his mind. And that's the type of foreknowledge that you're going to stick with. And this is, uh, this is in addition to uh, you know the Calvinist claim that God's foreknowledge is active and internal to himself and, and unoriginated from outside himself. Their foreknowledge... Uh, that they they tend to talk about is kind of like the simple foreknowledge where God just kind of knows everything that will happen in the future. But even then, it's not analogous to this scenario that this guy sets up. So what scenario is this guy setting up? That I know my kid, I, I got kids, you know, and I got a baby, and I know when that baby turns about one, and one's a pretty accurate age for walking, I know when that baby turns one that, that uh, baby's going to start walking. And uh, it's happened before. And, but does that mean that I knew, like, foreknew every single event, every twitch of the thumb that the baby's going to do while the baby's walking, what, what clothes the baby's going to be walking with? No. Instead, I knew major, predictable, uh, easy to recognize, and fairly obvious events at that. So if that's analogous, he's trying to build an analogy here. He's saying, look at this. Foreknowledge does not equal fatalism. Now let's apply it to God. And the funny thing is, is that's, that's the kind of foreknowledge that open theists believe God has. And so what's been happening in these Facebook threads or wherever these days is open theists are in these groups. And the open theists instantly jump on. And in this thread, this is why I love this thread so much, instantly everyone starts saying, well, welcome to open theism. Because your analogy is how open theists believe that God knows the future. God knows these these major uh, predictable things, things that he does, things that he organizes, things that uh, he plans and accomplishes, even things that he could predict, you know, major life steps. He knows the people will be evil in certain circumstances. He could predict these things because he's got past evidence to predict it. It's, it's not about meticulous foreknowledge of all events, every wiggle of the finger, every uh, uh, word everyone says for all eternity. It's not about that. And so this analogy is open theism. So everyone jumped on the thread and started saying, well, welcome to open theism. Because this this is what open theists believe. That's not what you believe. It instantly shot down his analogy, his straw man that he was trying to build for his idea that foreknowledge does not equal fatalism. Let's note the construction of his sentence. 
Did your foreknowledge that your baby would walk about age one mean that you determined its steps? So he's trying to think that he's he's arguing against a hypothetical person who believes that foreknowledge equals determination. <laughs> but uh, he, here he's using this idea of foreknowledge that's very accessible to you and I. I know I'll go to work tomorrow. Made the prediction uh, <laughs> half a dozen, two dozen times on this program. Always came true. Every single time it's come true. So the same type of foreknowledge I have uh, he's using it in relation to God. I agree. Okay, let's use that definition of foreknowledge. Let's stick with that definition of foreknowledge. And uh, we'll roll with that. Uh, welcome to open theism. And then he says, does it mean you determined its steps? Well, no. Does, does anyone claim that? Does anyone claim that my type of foreknowledge of me going to work tomorrow determines every little uh, turn of the will that I do? Anything like that? No, the foreknowledge is a generality about uh, what I will do based on my volition and power to accomplish, and just just my past history of how I know the world operates and functions. If foreknowledge does not equal determinism, and, and no one claims it does. No one claims it does. But foreknowledge plus absolute certainty does, does not equal determinism either, but it equals fatalism. Something's fading, something to happen, whether or not it's the foreknowledge. And if you throw God into the equation, God's the one creating everything from time eternity, uh, and everything must work out in that exact detail. God's the one causing it, right? Because God created the universe knowing full well that the universe works by these mechanical rules and operations where everything's going to happen exactly as planned. Before I was even born, all my actions were determined. God is the cause of all of that. So you throw those different factors into the equation, and suddenly, it's not this straw man anymore that these guys want to set up. Suddenly, it's a more complex equation that uh, they haven't dealt with. I haven't seen them deal with that actual equation, what they actually believe. They like to build analogies, open theist analogies, uh, and the open theists are calling them out on it. It's funny because th these analogies are crafted against Calvinists, and the Calvinists and open theists agree. The Calvinists inherently know that this is unworkable. This idea of their foreknowledge, this 100% certainty from all eternity and no determination or fatalism, trying to mix those two concepts together. Calvinists inherently know that that's messed up because, <laughs> because Calvinists have stake in the game, I'd say. They, they have uh, a reason to use rationality when it comes to at least this, at least this. And then when they come to their own views, they, they throw that same rationality out the window and they use double standards. Uh, it seems to me that open theists are the only ones who have any sort of consistency when it comes to these types of concepts, these, these types of ideas. So more and more on these debate pages or even the Calvinist or Arminian pages, open theists are in the ranks. And they'll instantly respond to these things and shut people down. And uh, it seems to be becoming more and more common. People have to contend with open theism finally in this world, right? It's great. It's great. Michael Faber, he is a moderator of an open theist site. He responds to this guy and he says this, two problems. I don't know that any baby will walk. That's just a likely probability. Two, since I don't know the very second it would happen, I don't actually have foreknowledge of that specific event. So unless you think God only has a general idea of what likely will happen and when your analogy is a huge failure. But if you think that is the nature of God's foreknowledge, you might be an open theist. 
So I like that. I like that. That Matt Slick, when he tried to do his thing, he he tried to use the example of, oh, I know Jason will go to his car after this debate and he'll drive home. He says, oh, barring a meteor strike. Oh, so so do you know it? So so let's take that definition of knowledge where it's not 100% infallible and then let's use it for our discussion here. But if you want to switch terms halfway through the discussion and now move from this uh, not fatalistic or this not uh, 100% certainty knowledge to this likely knowledge, a justified true belief is, is the common definition of knowledge. And I'd accept that definition of knowledge. And uh, I, most people use knowledge in that way. And I would use new knowledge in that way. But if you want to switch to this foreknowledge, which, which is 100% certainty, yeah, you're, you're changing words halfway through the debate. Your analogy is set up for open theists. You're making open theist points. And of course, I jump in and I say, God in the Bible tells us how he knows the future in several instances. He knows because he plans. He knows because he tests. He knows because he can predict. He knows because he can accomplish. God also knows because he looks. There's a lot of uh, verses about God watching mankind and looking down and seeing what man is doing. And people, it, it's, it's so funny. They say, oh, God has this knowledge. But God describes how he gains the knowledge. And they throw all of that out the window. We don't care how God describes him getting that knowledge. Uh, we'll just stick to our metaphysics that we want to import onto the Bible, where God can't receive knowledge to himself. And it's, uh, it's a mechanical. It's uh, instant. Uh, it's, uh, the entire data set is uh, instantly in God's purview. And God cannot not know something. So if... If God wanted to exclude a data set from his knowledge, he couldn't do that because that would make him less of a God. You know, he, he, he can't do these things. But that's not described in the Bible anywhere. That's their assumptions. And where are those assumptions coming from? They're not biblical assumptions. They have their roots in Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism. I would like to see a debate finally address these issues. I think these are major issues, and I think uh, they're often neglected. Uh, how does God gain his knowledge? Biblically speaking, in the Bible, how does God gain his knowledge? People don't want to talk about those things. They just want to assume it. They just want to say, oh, God has all knowledge. Look at my range of proof texts, and this is how he knows it. And I have no proof text for that, but that is how he knows it. Here's from uh, John MacArthur's new book, The Eternal Priority of God's Knowledge. This is John MacArthur. And uh, I just watched a clip of him saying, oh, the Bible's full of mysteries and we just don't know these things. And, and every time we look at something, there's even a bigger mystery. <laughs> and so he appeals to mysteries a lot. But uh, this is his statement on God's knowledge. God's knowledge is eternal and a priori from the previous, i.e. proceeding from a known or assumed cause to a necessarily related effect. Not a a posteriori from the subsequent i.e. from particulars to principles, from effects to causes, God's knowledge precedes all things outside God, never being derived from reality outside himself. And he gives a bunch of proof texts, and, you know, we could go to these proof texts. These proof texts, they, they don't reinforce this idea that God can't derive knowledge from outside himself. If you turn there, there's other more natural readings of these proof texts. Well, we could go over one. But uh, we'll keep rolling for now, and then we'll backtrack to Romans 8, 29. But he writes this, God's knowledge is also perfect, never increasing. He's got a couple of proof texts, too. He uses Isaiah. He uses Isaiah. 
It is definite, clearly defined, precise, certain, sure, and comprehensive. Psalms 139. Psalms 139, about you have searched me and known me. That God searches to know. That's his proof text. For God's knowledge is clearly defined, precise, certain, sure, and comprehensive. Yeah, he tells us in your proof text how he learns. And it's not this uh, a priori knowledge. It's God does something and then gains knowledge. And God's knowledge is eternally active, never passive, because God's essence is eternally active. <laughs> oh, that's, that's funny. Uh, it's funny. John MacArthur, let's go look at his proof text. So we'll just take a look at all of them. I think we got time for that. Romans 8.29. Romans 8.29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. Okay, back to this quote. This is his proof text. And what's he proof texting? God's knowledge precedes all things outside God, never being derived from reality outside himself. This is his proof text. Okay, so Romans 8.29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. So is, is this talking about God can't gain knowledge from outside himself? It seems to me this is, first of all, just talking about just election and predestination in general. And it's not talking about all knowledge that ever could ever exist. And secondly, there's a lot of assumptions being imported onto these words. For new, uh, it, there was a podcast that we did with a Calvinist preacher who talks about how that's not even about knowledge. That's about a relationship. So it's this experiential knowledge. This is this personal knowledge that Calvinists typically deny to God. They want it about propositional knowledge. But this is about knowing someone intimately. And who does he know? He knows the remnant. He knows the people that he's trying to set up. It's about groups. It's not about individuals. He also predestined or specified as we talk about. That's that's the word in normal Greek usage. Is You just specify something. That's predestination. It's not this Calvinist idea of eternal foreknowledge, election, crystal ball, picking people from time eternity. That's not the idea. Not the idea in common usage. So he intimately knows a people group and he specifies them to be conformed to his image. Uh, so that uh, he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So from that, <laughs> from that, MacArthur gets God's knowledge can't come from sources outside himself. Fantastic. Fantastic. Next proof text. 1 Corinthians 2.7 But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, a hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages to our glory. This this is, this is your proof text that God's knowledge can't come from outside himself. I think this is talking about, again, a specific thing, God's mystery, which is ordained before ages for our glory. Does, does that mean it's eternal, not from outside himself? He didn't use any interaction with uh, anything in reality to, to get this knowledge. Is this even propositional knowledge? Is this plans? What's this talking about? It's, it's, it's not God can't gain things from outside himself. Their proof texts are so lacking. They are so desperate for proof texts. This is what they do. They just pull anything and they slap it in there. They don't quote the verses. They don't talk about the verses. That's a thing. When reading systematic theologies, if they're not quoting the verses that they're proof texting, uh, it's, it's probably just all garbage. It's garbage. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, 
having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. This is about God cannot receive knowledge from outside himself. This is your proof text. Again, this is about God choosing his elect, God choosing his remnant for a specific purpose, a specific people group for a purpose, and it's about his planning. What? Is this about God is so abstract that there's not some data that could flow to him from outside himself, that all his knowledge is internal to himself, self-generated, apart from the world. Is that what's going on here? Paul, if Paul's writing this, Paul is insane. He's on a lot of drugs if that's what he means by this verse. 2 Timothy 1.9. Are we seeing a trend here? Are we seeing a trend here? MacArthur is terrible at proof texting. He just throws random verses, and uh, the verses have nothing to do with what he's trying to prove. And he just quotes anything, uh, just anything. So 2 Timothy 1.9. So, so let, let's, let's be betting men. I'm a betting man. Um, how much do we want to bet this has anything to do with what he's trying to prove? 2 Timothy 1.9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. And that's the time of the ages, if you're reading in the Greek. But uh, is this about God not being able to gain knowledge from outside himself? That even just, just the Calvinist reading of this verse, um, if you're Calvinist, uh, before time began, let's pretend time's a created thing. We'll just assume that. We'll give them that one. Is this about God can't gain knowledge from outside himself in any circumstance, at any point in history, at any time? Is that what this is about? No, it's not. Again, again, this, this is about the remnant. There, all the verses are about the same remnant that God has always planned to have, a people group to himself. Uh, the purpose of the creation of man was to have a love relationship with mankind, <laughs> a give and take relationship where he gets knowledge from outside himself. That's the purpose. That's the purpose. And so all these, all these eternal purposes of God, where God wants this relationship, Calvinists turn into the, an impersonal relationship where there's no give and take and God is solely alone and uh, can't be affected from the world outside himself. And they destroy the relationship with proof texts talking about God's relationship with mankind. That's how backwards Calvinism is. Then we go here. God's knowledge is perfect, never increasing. This is the next thing he's trying to prove text. Isaiah 40, 13 through 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Well, there's Abraham, there's Job, and uh, there's Moses. But this is a generality. This is just saying that God's so above us. God controls all these things. And people generally can't affect them. It's, it's a rule of thumb. But yeah, there's notable exceptions throughout the Bible. But it doesn't reinforce the point that they're trying to go for here in Isaiah to list the examples. This is not a tech, technical manual. This is, this is a specific point to a specific people at a specific point in time. And of course, there's going to be exemptions from the general rule. Whom did he consult? Maybe the angels in uh, 2 Kings 22. Who made him understand? Again, uh, Abraham in Genesis 18, who taught on the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. There, there are examples of the Bible that these are general generalities. These are rules of thumb and uh, they're it's being used because Isaiah 40 is written towards 
Israel in captivity. And they're trying to say, God doesn't have to listen to what you guys are saying. God, God is his own person. God is powerful. God can accomplish. God can do things. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust. So it's all about God's power. And you're not going to undermine it with these off-chance examples that are not indicative of the entire narrative of the Bible, but more of uh, exceptions, like God's a reasonable person. It's not that God's power is being thwarted in these instances when people convince God to do something else. God's still the one in control. God's still the one with power. So it's, it's not a relevant example to what's being proved in this proof text. But of course, the Calvinist is going to take a rhetorical question made to a specific people group for a specific purpose, and they're going to use it to override the narratives of the Bible. And they're going to try to take it very mechanically because that's what they have to do. And as we've seen throughout the Bible, a lot of the same language that's applied to God is also applied to man. Let's talk real quick about another verse that's kind of parallel so you can understand what I'm talking about with these generalities. Lamentations 3.37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Basically, if you want to take the Calvinist wooden reading, every time that someone says something about the future that comes true, then God commanded it. That, that's a prophecy from God. But that, that, that's not the case. That's not the point of what's going on here. What this is doing is this is warding against these false prophets who prophesy in the name of Yahweh. And basically it's saying you know the true from the false prophet based on if the prophecy actually comes true. Back to the proof text. God's knowledge is also perfect, never increasing. Romans 11:34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Quite a lot of people. So he's, he's saying, look at this New Testament reference for the Old Testament that we already used as a proof text. And that's my second proof text for the same concept. But is that what the context is about? Oh, the depths of those riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. So it's about God's kingship, God's rulership, that uh, God does what he wants and he, he's not held accountable to anyone else. No, no one puts his power in check. So that's what the context is about. But from that, MacArthur gets this. He gets God's knowledge is also perfect, never increasing. That's what that's about. That's what that's about, MacArthur. You're wrong. You are wrong. MacArthur says, It is definite, clearly defined, precise, certain, sure, and comprehensive. Psalms 139, 1 through 3. We already talked about that. Psalms 139, 1 through 3 has God learning, increasing in knowledge. Literally, that's the context. Lord, you have searched me and known me. God searches to know. Brilliant, John MacArthur. You failed. You have failed. And let's let's turn to the last verse going on here in uh, Psalms 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So King David says, keep searching me. And try to figure out if there's anything bad in me. He's, he's inviting God to learn more about him. Literally. That God learns through testing. That's what Psalms 139 is about. It's about God's relationship with King David and how close they are. So close, in fact, that God continually tests and they have this continual interaction. 
and God's learning from his testing. That's that's MacArthur's proof text. Uh, Hebrews 4.13, this is also going to definitely be about God's knowledge being definite, clearly defined, precise, certain, sure, and comprehensive. Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden in his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account. Oh, oh, God watches and learns. That's what Hebrews 4.13 is about, that God receives knowledge from sources outside himself. This, these are proof texts against your view. MacArthur, you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot here. No wonder you didn't quote these. No wonder you didn't go over them, what they mean. Uh, they refute your ideas. All these texts are about God learning things, and it talks about how God learns these things. God receives knowledge from outside himself, which is, uh, they, they never want to talk about how, how God receives his knowledge, especially in their systematic theology explaining that God doesn't receive his knowledge from outside himself. They don't want to talk about their proof texts. Their proof texts contradict it. Oh, it's funny. It's funny. Uh, and the last assertion that John MacArthur makes, look at this. And God's knowledge is eternally active, never passive, because God's essence is eternally active. No proof text there. You might want to slap, slap a Plotinus on there. <laughs> a Neoplatonist philosopher. That, that could be your source. That could be your proof text. Uh, th this proof texting is atrocious, and you'll find that in systematic theologies. Look for theology books that actually quote the verses that they're proof texting. You know, They give the actual quote from the context, and, and hopefully they even cover the context. How this verse proves their point in context, how the context is about their point, and they could actually derive their point from the context, rather than this verse theology where you just say some random claim and then you staple a bunch of unrelated verses to the end. It's terrible. It's terrible. Anyways, uh, John MacArthur, fantastic, superb theologian, systematic theology. Uh, I need to buy his book. I, I pulled this out from my Google preview, because I like read the relevant parts about uh, knowledge and omniscience and stuff like that. But I do need to buy it still and uh, read it. And, and at least he talks about God's active knowledge, which is something that the Calvinists and uh, some Arminians literally believe in, but they never want to talk about. And then they come to these pages, they come and confront open theists, they, they, they talk with these straw men about God's knowledge being analogous to mankind, where they don't believe that at all. If man, God's foreknowledge is analogous to man's foreknowledge, <laughs> welcome to open theism. You're an open theist now. All right, if you have any questions or comments about this podcast, put, send that to godisopenquestions at gmail.com or start a thread on the God is Open uh, Facebook page or even YouTube page. Should be good. Thank you for listening. <laughs>